Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast. This is a special, we're back, bitches! That's right! Bitches, we're back. Bitches. <laughs> bitches. <laughs> I didn't do shit, Chuck. How many, how many times have we uh, come back from the dead, Matt? We have come back three times. That's two times more than Jesus. Yeah, so suck it, Jesus. <laughs> Chuck. We've emerged from the tomb. Yeah, Matt, weren't you supposed to do like a podcast every fucking week while I was gone? Didn't you listen to all of them? Weren't you? I went to download, when I finished uh, recertifying for my boards, I went to uh, download all of the podcasts that had stacked up. Yeah. And, uh, of course, not one fucking podcast were... had been recorded. Oh, you... Uh, Strong work. Strong work. You must have disconnected from your feed. We all got it. Everybody else got them, right? (laughs) The hell? (laughs) I was busy. We even took a fucking vacation in the middle of that shit, too. I was studying for the boards, Chuck. But no no podcast. Not one podcast. Not even a supercut. Wait. Yes, there was a supercut. Oh, there was a supercut. That's right. I know, because I fucking edited it. (laughs) Hey. To be fair, I did attempt a recording with um, the wonderful Leela Moses, but the time the time difference proved to be an obstacle I could not surmount. It was unsurmountable. I see. I'd, I'd apologize, but I have seen zero Patreon dollars so far. Where's all that Patreon yeah. money? Yeah, we signed up for it, I think. Pretty sure. We mentioned it. Hey, how about we do some... Uh, how about we get off this topic and... <laughs> how about we change the topic... <laughs> And do some iTunes reviews. Change the topic from your impressive laziness. Yes, yes. Yep. What the fuck did you do for two whole months while I was breaking my back okay. studying? I had to go to Cozumel and scuba dive. That was no. one thing. I didn't have a choice. It, it had Reasonable. to be done. I, di- I worked. I really did. I did some working. I flew people around. Crashed a couple planes. I crashed zero planes. I still have a perfect record. <laughs> Well, Matt, uh, you might be surprised uh, to learn that there were some iTunes reviews in our absence while we were busy sitting on our asses. I found, People were, I, you know, got off their asses and started reviewing our show. So the, so the people that reviewed the podcast did more work on the podcast than I did in the last couple yes, of months. Yes, <laughs> that, that is true. A new low for our show. <laughs> Uh, I'd say that's a new high, I think. That's, <laughs> you're looking at it all wrong, son. <laughs> uh, one of my faves, five-star review from uh, My T. I like the show because of Chuck. Did you hear that, Matt? Oh. Chuck. What? Chuck. Ah, but the next Chuck. sentence. Matt, you are better than your douche predecessor. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. I also like the dynamic of Chuck basically spoon-feeding everything to Matt until he understands which has the added benefit of helping me understand that that hey. is true. Well, hey, hold on. And that is not uh, that is not an act Matt puts on, by the way. That actually is. No, no. How smart he is. That's the character. It's just a character I play. Oh, it's the character Matt. Yeah, I I am the foil to your epee. I don't know. Um. <laughs> Matt, you should get an Academy Award. I think so. Yeah, but I'd settle for a I don't know a Golden Globe. A, ooh. Golden Globe. Great free entertainment. Five stars by Rachel Shields. Love the show, guys. I listened to you back when I was a Christian and thought you were completely blasphemous. Well, she's right. Yes. We are. But she kept listening anyway. What? Your, your show along with several uh, several others. Hey. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> Out. <laughs> you, I would ban you if you would join our Facebook page and then commented so I could Find Join you. the page, <laughs> comment, and we will ban your ass. She says she's now an atheist, Matt. Uh, I would be a patron if you guys weren't too lazy to set up a Patreon account. It's there. It's everybody spelling it wrong. Love these guys by Skeletor. I really enjoy this show. Hope they keep it up. They always joke that no one likes the show. I hope it is just a joke. No, that's probably the truest thing yeah, we've I, ever said on the show. That is the one thing. That is, uh, if they, you're going to pick up anything from this podcast, it's, that's it. I admit to, to uh, some sarcasm on the show, but uh, when we joke that no one likes the show, it's not a joke. It's not a joke. It's because we hate ourselves. 
rude and insightful four-star review by Vilmador. Isn't that uh, the um, villain on Harry Potter? Vilmador, yes. He has no he has no nose. With a discussion of deep topics that most people can't agree on, I'm glad these two do it with some crude Hummer. Hummer? <laughs> like the car? <laughs> so crude Hummer? Like the oh, no. That's, sex technique? No, no, that's Hummer. That oh, is a Hummer. kind of a, uh, a plural hummus. Sandwich? <laughs> I think so. It's like falafel. That only seems fitting for the genre. I have learned a lot and laughed a lot as well. Oh, really? <laughs> I've, I, I know what he hasn't learned. <laughs> how, to do, how to give us a fifth fucking star. That's oh, what he hasn't learned. I was going to say that a lot is not a word. It yeah. is two words. Neither is Hummer. A lot. <laughs> a lot of Hummer in this review. <laughs> My favorite podcast. Oh, this is it. Five stars by Susanna210. Are you kidding? 210? There's 209 Susannas out there. Come back. Miss you guys. And you're wonderful. You're, you're wonderful. Oh, you're wonderful. Honey-laden voices. Oh. Honey-laden voices. She must be talking about me. Eat shit, Book of Mormon dude. Isn't that guy, <laughs> wouldn't he get all those uh, compliments on his voice? He did. He did. Yeah. Eat shit, fucker. Honey, honey laden. laden. Mm, delicious. Delicious honey. Well, enough about iTunes reviews. How about skunk dicks? Let's do some skunk dicks. Let's do them. Let's do some dicks. Chuck, uh, as you know, it is a mere year and a half away from the next presidential election in these here United States. So that means, of course, that they're campaigning already. Ugh. The, uh, the crazies are out in force this year. I thought, I thought it was an entertaining Republican field last time around, but uh, we got Ted Cruz this year. Oh, no. This is going to be... If we get Michelle Bachman back in again... Oh, it's going to be fucking great. She might make a run for it. We got Mike Huckabee. He's a perennial Republican loser. Crazy as shit. Uh, who else? Ben Carson. Our ben fa- one Carson. of our favorite on the show. Ted Carson Stone is at Cruz. I think you've mentioned already. Yes, Ted Cruz. And Marco. He's crazy enough he's worth repeating. Yeah, <laughs> Ted Cruz. I love how Ted fucking Cruz thinks he's going to appeal to... Uh, a Anyone? wide percentage of the population. <laughs> in a general election, Ted Cruz is going to fucking have a chance in hell of winning. How about Marco Rubio? Mr. Excuse me while I slip this <laughs> bottle of water down. Uh, Chuck, so these guys have come out. They've, they've proclaimed already that they're running for president. So I think it's time to have a good old-fashioned Christ off. Uh, in other words... The Republican primaries. Let's start off. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start off with the crazy nut. Ted Cruz. Here's what Ted Cruz has to say about God and government. America was founded on a revolutionary concept, namely that our rights don't come from government. They come from God Almighty. The natural rights of man include life, liberty, and property. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting that third one. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he's quoting not from the Constitution there, but the sort of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, slash property. Property. Property is very important. Uh, uh, well, the rights the rights don't come from government. They come from God. Yeah. That's why we have a Bill of Rights written by the government. Uh, are you, no, I think it was written by God, right? Oh, no, this is written by God. Yeah. That's right. I'm sure somebody will say that. The hand of God. Next up, Mike Huckabee. I wish I could do the accent, but I, I don't. I don't quite have that douchey southern thing. But uh, <clears throat> here we go. I respect the courts, but the Supreme Court is only that—the supreme of the courts. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> it is not the supreme being. It cannot overrule God. When it comes to prayer, when it comes to life, and when it comes to the sanctity of marriage, the court cannot change what God has created. Oh, Lord. Well, I, I hope he finds out in a couple months that the court can indeed overrule God. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking from the tone of that, that, that beats Ted Cruz right there. Overruled, Yahweh. Overruled. Now sit the fuck down. <laughs> Shut up. I can't wait to see him in that movie, too. The Criminalization of Christianity. 
Oh, it's going to be good. Well, this looks like uh, Huckabee can really wrap this up, Chuck. This is Huckabee's fight to lose here. Yeah. Oh, we got one more contender, though. Ben Carson. Our founders were... Uh, This this could be a close one. It could be. Ben Carson, a friend of the show, has been on multiple times, and he's said some pretty fucking crazy shit. (laughs) This could go the distance. This could go. Let's see what he's got. Our founders were Christians. There were some Jews involved as well. So we're Judeo-Christian <laughs> nation. <laughs> so that's where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> Many people have tried to rewrite history have said that George Washington, Ben Franklin, Hamilton, Jefferson were deist. People who just thought there's a God who puts things in motion, then takes a hike and leaves everything to itself. In my book, uh, I put so many quotes from our founders that they demonstrate unequivocally that they believe in an act of God and they sought help from him all the time. Benjamin Franklin, at the time of the Constitutional Convention, when the whole thing is about to fall apart, he stood up in front of the whole assembly at 81 years old and he said, Gentlemen, stop! During the war, every other phrase out of our mouth was, Lord, help us, and now you don't even want to talk about God. We need to get down our knees, and we need to pray for wisdom. And guess what happened next, Chuck? Uh, They wrote the Constitution. The whole assembly knelt and prayed, and when they got up, they put together a 16 and one-third page document known as the Constitution of the United States. Oh, he comes from behind, and he takes it. Huckabee, knocked flat on his ass, <laughs> nose bleeding, doesn't know where the fuck he is. Ben Carson, heavyweight Christ champion of the world. Unifies all three <laughs> Judeo-Christian Love Islamic it. belts. Love it. Undisputed, heavyweight Christ champion of the world. That's where Judeo-Christians come from. <laughs> Yeah, Benjamin Franklin, huge evangelical Christian. <laughs> Enormous. And that's exactly how the Constitution was written, too. Uh, Madison really didn't have anything to do with it. No. Jefferson, uh, Franklin. Uh, not, not, you know, pulling together the uh, philosophical, political views of Hobbes, Locke, and Montesquieu. They just got down and prayed, got up, and wrote the fucking Constitution. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. It was a bunch of Christians and a few Jews. Don't... Don't forget the Jews, Chuck. <laughs> you got a few Jews in there, you know. Jews in there. <laughs> oh, awesome. Ben Carson. All right. Amazing. I would have thought maybe uh, Huckabee would have pulled it off, but no. 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 I think Carson's lesser known, and so he's got to go for the knockout punch. He does. He's 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 got to just go for it, you know. I I, I honestly cannot wait to, to watch a fucking debate between these idiots. I cannot wait. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Moving on. Well, Matt. Uh, Does this podcast have a topic? Or are we just, we're just welcoming you back? Welcome back, Chuck. That's it. Woo! <laughs> uh, shit. What is this about? It's about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. That's what it's about. What's the Mountain Meadows Massacre? It, you know, if, if any of you have listened to my previous podcast on the Church of Awesome then you're fucking banished, excommunicated. Yeah, you're out. Excommunicated! Because those pod- other podcasts don't exist, right? No. But if you did listen to it, you can probably skip this because it's going to be you know, pretty much exactly the same. <laughs> Ex- what about me, though? Now you'll have my commentary. Oh, right. You just listen for Matt's uh, color commentary. <laughs> just listen for me going, huh? So Chuck has to explain things to me. I'll go ahead and spoon feed it to you, Matt. Thank you. The Mountain of Meadows Massacre was actually... The, uh, how do I say this, most... Infamous, infamous event in Mormon history that's been denied? It is the worst uh, massacre of overland immigrants in the history of the United States. Oh. And it was carried out by... Mormons. Mormons. You know, the Mormons. <laughs> now, if anyone asks you, what harm can religion do? I want you to point them to the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Mormons typically are thought of, right, they've got this... They're a little weird, maybe, but they're fresh-faced, they're young, they're clean-living, good people. Wholesome. Maybe weird, but yeah, right, they're wholesome. <laughs> well, um, not to spoil anything, but a, a group of wholesome, fresh-faced, young, clean-living Mormons massacred nearly 140 people as they were traveling overland from Arkansas yeah. to California. In cosplay, too. What? They were in cosplay? 
Weren't they dressed up? <laughs> they were dressed up. Chuck, I'm trying to relate to the kids. Come on. Right. You're correct. They were dressed up. You're getting ahead of the story. This is why I'm going to be on MTV and you're not. <laughs> Let me give you a little bit of historical uh, background information so you can understand why this massacre took place. How about we just send everybody off to read uh, Under the Banner of Heaven by a uh, crack? Or better yet, <laughs> the Blood of the Prophets by Bagley, where I uh, oh, yeah. um, researched all this information. Oh, sure, if you want accuracy. So uh, you can back up all the way to the Hans Mill Massacre, uh, which occurred on October 30th, 1838. So this is in Missouri. Now remember... The Mormons have, have settled in Missouri. This is the the land of uh, paradise, right? This is where the Garden of Eden oh, was God. in Missouri. Yeah. This is where Adam on Diamond, where, you know, when Jesus comes again, he'll talk to his saints in Missouri. This was the initial Zion. Uh, Nauvoo! So well, that was... Well, was Illinois. That was Illinois. <laughs> uh, Mormons have settled here, and uh, not only do they settle... But they purchase land and they vote as one. So essentially, yeah. Joseph Smith tells everyone how to vote, and they go and vote. And pretty soon, they have enough people there that they're disrupting the government. They're moving all their Mormon people in, uh, and they're taking advantage of the non-Mormon population, who they now outnumber. That's how you do it. Um, so, <laughs> so this anchors the local people who've been there for years and years. Yeah. And keep in mind, too, that they're they're having these little skirmishes where Missouri people come over and they'll burn a house down or steal a bunch of goods and beat people up. Then Joseph Smith sends his Danite band of Mormon ninjas out to raise hell and uh, burn down property and beat the shit out of other people. And so it's going back and forth and back and forth. Uh, I believe that uh, during this time, uh, you remember the exter- you know, the infamous extermination order, right? Yeah. Where Governor Boggs says, you know, it's legal to exterminate all Mormons in Missouri. Uh, he wasn't the first to use the word extermination. About a week before that, I believe, Sidney Rigdon gave a speech uh, saying that we are going to exterminate all of our enemies. What year is this? This is in 1838. Jesus Christ, people. Things are, things are coming to a head. They're uh, about to go to war, essentially to save their land and, and the ability to stay in Missouri. So on October 30th, 1838, there's a, a local militia comprised of about 200, 250 men led by the sheriff of Caldwell County, Missouri. They attack a group of uh, Mormon settlers, killing 17 of them, uh, among them two children, 9 and 10 years old. The, uh, the 10-year-old was found hiding under the blacksmith bellows, and uh, shot in the head at close range. Now, asked afterwards, one of the people said, well, you know, nits will make lice, and if he'd lived, he would have become a Mormon. So, uh. you got you to gotta kill him. So they killed 17, wounded 13 more, uh, among them women and children. The, um, the men were all killed. As the women and children were rushing into the forest, the men took shelter in the, I think, the blacksmith shop, and which turned out to be a... a fairly poor strategic move because the blacksmith shop had wide gaps between the logs so they could essentially just fire Uh inside of it. So uh, no one in the militia was ever prosecuted for these murders. Two days later on November 1st, 1838 uh, LDS surrendered uh, and they were forced to leave the state and their property. So they moved down, I believe from Missouri to Illinois. So that's the first kind of major event that uh, sparked these kind of memories that Mormons have of persecution. Wait, and that was Nauvoo. Yes, they moved from Missouri to Nauvoo, okay. Illinois. Nauvoo. Well, I'd like to point out, too, I believe the extermination order uh, was after, was it after Joseph Smith allegedly sent Porter Rockwell, his uh, avenging angel, bodyguard, right, to shoot... Governor Boggs, um, and there was actually a shot outside his home, broke the window, narrowly missed uh, Boggs while he was sitting on the couch, and uh, the guy was was never caught. Porter Rockwell later asked about never denied that he took the shot, but he said stuff like, well, if it were me, I wouldn't have missed. (laughs) Well, I'd like to point out that in Star Trek III, when the High Priestess is putting the Katra back in Spock, she says, Navu! Ah! 
for some reason. I guess. Lada, she's a high priestess of Mormonism. I think so. I think that's what's going on. Only Vulcans would let a woman become a high priestess. <laughs> the second event uh, was the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith in uh, June of 1844 at the Carthage, Illinois jail. Five men were tried for, for their murders. You remember the story. There's a big nah. mob of people surrounded the jail, shot Hiram in the face, uh, got Joseph Smith as he's trying to jump out the window and fell down and uh, finished him off at the well. Shot John Taylor. Anyway, five men were tried for the murders, all of them acquitted. Apparently, it's not a crime to kill Mormons anywhere. No. <laughs> Missouri, Illinois. Um, Doctrine and Covenants uh, 135 canonized into uh, the foundational books of um, Mormonism, one of the foundational books. Uh, it was written by John Taylor, who was there at the martyrdom. Uh, it reads in part, And their innocent blood, with the innocent blood of all the martyrs under the altar that John saw, will cry unto the Lord of hosts till he avenges that blood on the earth. Amen. Oh. And when the Nauvoo Temple was finished, you remember, as they're moving out of Nauvoo uh, to to Salt Lake, because, you know, again, no one really likes Mormons. They don't. No. They want them out of Illinois. <laughs> Move, keep moving. <laughs> but Joseph Smith had prophesied that the Nauvoo Temple would be finished, and so they stuck around a little bit longer to finish the Nauvoo Temple and then abandoned yeah. it. <laughs> just, yeah. Just so the prophecy would come true. <laughs> Um, is prophecies don't come true on their own, Chuck. <laughs> it takes work. Has the Lord of Hosts uh, avenged the blood on the earth yet? Oh, we'll get to that. Oh, God, I'm jumping ahead. I want you to remember that when we come to the massacre. Ooh, okay. Um, let me, hold on, let me write now, that down. Now, remember, as part of the endowment ceremony, you're supposed to pledge all of your uh, work and and earnings and everything uh, like that to the church, right? Well, after what? No way! Fuck that! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> after the Nauvoo Temple was finished, Brigham Young added new language to the endowment ceremony, saying, "Quote: I will pray and never cease to pray, and never cease to importune high heaven to avenge the blood of the prophets on this nation, and I will teach this to my children unto the third and fourth generation." So everyone who goes to the temple endowment ceremony essentially swears an oath to pray that God will avenge the blood of the prophets. And they, they pray and never cease to pray? They can never well, cease praying? At least until the you know children of the third and fourth generation. Oh, then they can finally okay. cease praying. Yeah, finally take a break. Woo! God damn, that was a lot of praying. <laughs> okay, done. In 1852, Brigham Young revealed polygamy to, uh, I'm sorry, celestial marriage to <laughs> Fact straight, man. So, Matt, in March of 1857, uh, the Utah Territorial Legislature sent a letter to the U.S. government stating they would decide for themselves which federal laws to obey. Because, you know, they're a territory, right? So, which federal laws are going to obey? And they'd reject any federal officers who failed to meet their moral standards. Now, this was preceded by a campaign of essentially tossing out federal officers and uh, beating the shit out of other ones. So right. that most of them just fled. So this letter was seen as treason by President Buchanan, who uh, I believe was new, right? He he had just won the election and, and just been um, a couple months maybe uh, as president. Uh-oh, he's, he's going to have to do something. Show, show he's a strong president. So uh, by April of 1857, every remaining federal officer except one left the Utah Territory. <laughs> Except one. <laughs> Maybe he liked it there. Maybe he liked getting the shit kicked out of him. I don't know. <laughs> Buchanan responds by sending 2,000 troops and the new governor on their way to Utah. Brigham Young threatens to close overland travel through the territory and stop restraining the Indians in response, right? He's, he's holding uh, the Indians back. Right. <laughs> now, uh, there's only, I believe at this point, two overland routes to get from the uh, east to California. And uh, one of them goes through southern Utah. The other one, which is a lot longer, goes above Utah uh, and into uh, wild Native American territory. Uh There's no one there to restrain them. Supposedly far less safe. Right. (laughs) Now, in May of 1857, so about a month later, Apostle Parley P. Pratt 
how do I say this, fell in love, or I don't know how... He's uh, secured his 12th wife <laughs> from Arkansas, a lady by the name of Eleanor McLean. Now, unfortunately, he got his uh, ceiling to her uh, for time and all eternity uh, without actually having her get divorced first. You know, because your 12th Oops. wife, you, you were in a serious hurry to get that 12th wife. Oh, yeah, yeah. If he gets a 13, they call that a Mormon's dozen. It's a <laughs> <laughs> So she's not even divorced yet. She's married to uh, Apostle Parley Pratt. Uh, he escapes with her and absconds with the children. And uh, he is then sent to a missionary trip to Oklahoma. And on his way back through Arkansas, he's arrested for theft of children's clothing. Because <laughs> there's no law in the books that uh, penalizes a, a parent for kidnapping their own child. No. <laughs> so... Got to come up with something, though. <laughs> so he, he's brought up on charges of theft of children's clothing, but he's released for lack of evidence. Now, Hector McLean, the angry ex-husband, uh, kind of kind of ex-husband, still husband, actually, because uh, they haven't gotten divorced yet, tracks Pratt down, stabs him, and shoots him. Stabs him and then shoots him? Yes, and leaves him for dead. He survives oh, for a God. couple hours, but eventually bleeds to death. This obviously infuriates the Mormons because um, Parley P. Pratt was a pretty popular guy. Yeah. He was He was, uh, He was. was big in the church, wasn't he? He was an apostle. He Mormon had 12, 12. wives. Uh, exactly. You can't have 12 wives without being big in the church. After these events, a paper in uh, San Francisco asked, quote, whether the hot blood which must now be seething and boiling in the veins of Brigham Young and his satellites at Salt Lake City is to be cooled by the murder of Gentiles who pass through their territory. Uh. The paper could not say, quote, whether the destroying angels of Mormondom, which I guess are the Danites, right? The, the Mormon ninjas. Yes. Yeah, are to be brought into requisition to make reprisals upon travelers, or whether, as has been done before, saints disguised as Indians are to constitute themselves the supposed ministers of God's vengeance in this case. That's kind of eerily prescient of future yeah. events foreshadowing. So Brigham Young sends Apostle George Albert Smith uh, to tour southern Utah and give these fiery speeches to uh, chasing the people, um, and to prepare the South for the government's pending invasion, because there are all these troops on their way, right? Right. Uh, now, George Albert Smith, Matt, weighed well over 300 pounds, and he suspiciously continued to weigh well over 300 pounds despite three straight years of famine. <laughs> huh. I don't know about you, but if I'm down south, I probably weigh fucking 96 pounds because I haven't eaten in three years. Have right. this fat fucker tell me that I'm not righteous enough, <laughs> I might just murder him. And eat him. <laughs> he <laughs> can feed us all winter. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine what he's looking like when, you know, on that pounding that lectern and it's, that's, really that's, hungry. That's the classic. That's, that's a of, classic move. Cedar City. <laughs> yeah, to show up fat and blame the starving skinny people for all our problems. <laughs> well, he probably... pauses to eat a fucking turkey right. leg. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. He had a big old fucking turkey. It's like half in his mouth. There's a problem here. There's <laughs> you people. I'm not praying enough. People are looking at him and he turns into a giant fucking hot dog. <laughs> so basically... The people were told to store up their grain, not to give one kernel to emigrants on a penalty of being cut off in the church. So people can pass through, but don't give them any food or supplies or anything because they have they might have to hold off a siege of the United States government. Right it. Now, also, uh, there's a doctrine of blood atonement, which Brigham Young's been preaching for the past few years. And it's that... Certain sins, such as mentioned in the uh, Doctrine and Covenants, uh, like the shedding of innocent blood, right? So those sins were beyond the power of Christ's blood to absolve. And uh, they required the shedding of the sinner's blood. So apparently Christ's atonement was not infinite. Wow. It's it had limits. It's not good enough. Oh. So his blood was good enough for, like, white lies and stealing donuts or something. Yes, Not exactly. <laughs> Not serious shit. So what do you do for serious shit? Well, then you got to spill the sinner's blood, oh. not Christ's. Oh. 
So Brigham Young asked in early in 1857, Will you love that man or woman well enough to shed their blood? I believe he said in the journal discourses, If I open up that door and I see one of my wives uh, having sex with another man, I hope I would love those people enough to throw a javelin through their hearts. <laughs> that's, that's true love. Because, you know, <laughs> when you're one of Brigham Young's fucking 50 wives and you want to have sex with someone else, for God's sakes, that's unforgivable. Yeah. You gotta shed your own blood for that. No, only Brigham or whoever gets to fuck whoever he wants. Yeah, <laughs> that's the domain of a prophet, for God's sakes. I guess none of them loved him enough. Apostle Jedediah Grant said Mormons had a quote right to kill a sinner to save him when he commits those crimes that can only be atoned for by shedding his blood. We would not kill a man, of course, unless we killed him to save him. So I wonder when they did this, did they ask his permission? <laughs> right. <laughs> you killed some, you know, you did some pretty bad shit. We're going to kill you, but we're doing it to save you. Is that okay? I don't want to be saved. <laughs> right with you. In the words of the internet, seems legit. Seems <laughs> legit. Sounds fair to me. <laughs> so against this backdrop, uh, the Fancher Party, which is an immigrant party from Arkansas, oh, consisting no. of roughly 140 people, now two-thirds of which were women and children. Take the northern route! Traveling <laughs> through Utah Territory. Of course, like everyone else, they plan to resupply their grain in Utah, but because of that Mormon Reformation and telling you how to prepare for the pending federal government's invasion, they were denied. Denied. Now, this got them into some fairly heated arguments with the Mormons over grazing rights for their cattle because they got to feed their cattle, right? Yeah. And they, they were told that they can't feed it and they got to go over here they can't go over there. Uh, and they got pretty angry. Uh, rumors start spreading that some of their party uh, were present at the death of Parley Pratt. And uh, some of them had bragged that they had, quote, the gun that killed Joe Smith. So... Ooh. I don't know if this is... It's hard to tell the timing of this shit. If this was, you know, before the fact, uh, or if this stuff happened after the fact, uh, just to kind of justify what later happened. Right, yeah. Uh, But you can kind of see, as they're getting angrier and angrier... uh, (laughs) They provoked (laughs) us. Perhaps, yeah, (laughs) perhaps. Some people say stuff that they didn't really mean, or in in hindsight might not have been the wisest thing to say. Later on, they were uh, accused of, I think, poisoning one of the wells that maybe a, a, a child had died and a bunch of cattle. But again, they claimed for years afterwards that it was just the Native American, it was just the Indians that attacked these people, not Mormons. So I'm not sure why them poisoning a well would have made any difference at all. Right. right. That, that only justifies vengeance. Uh, and the, the uh, a separate investigation came to the conclusion that they, they weren't a big enough party to poison any well. I mean, they'd have to be carrying a whole lot of shit. Anyway. Yeah. Like po- like the poison we carry, just in case we need it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you just haul it fucking across hundreds and hundreds of miles. Uh, sure. Um, so, a group of priesthood leaders, among them John D. Lee, Isaac Height, Nephi Johnson, John Higby, and the Bishop of Cedar City, Philip Klingensmith... Klingenschmidt? <laughs> Wasn't he that guy in Rudolph or uh, with uh, that Santa thing? We <laughs> yeah, Burgermeister Klingenschmidt. <laughs> I think so. Uh, they arranged a council to decide what to do with the party as it passed through their territory. Now remember that this whole Reformation—you got to be obedient to the leaders, uh, you got to be righteous, and remember that they had all sworn oaths to avenge the blood of the prophets or, or pray that the blood of the prophets would be avenged, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they're meeting together to decide what to do with this party, which, you know, all these rumors are spreading that they they killed the Prophet Joseph, they killed Parley Pratt. Um, so they come up with a plan uh, to kill the party, uh, to avenge their prophets that killed the party. They present it to a larger council, uh, one of whom objected. <laughs> no, well, at least um, somebody spoke up. Uh, this might not be the best thing to do. Uh, he objected, saying that you know Brigham Young should be informed and asked what to do. You know, the actual president of the church. It was actually um, one of the the uh, settlers passing through was in disguise, and he <laughs> he was in the group. I think we should let him go. <laughs> Who's that guy? 
So they sent a writer with a message, but, you know, it's on horseback. So they got to go from fucking Cedar City to Salt Lake, which is a six-day round trip on horseback. Uh, yeah. Meantime, they decided to continue their preparations because if Brigham Young okays it, they don't want to be caught unawares, right? They got to right. do their duty. Yeah. So they gathered a, a group of Paiutes and promised them cattle and weapons if they led the attack. And by leading the attack, they mean absorb the initial volley of gunfire. (laughs) If we wouldn't mind being the human shields, I mean leading the attack. Uh, So Mormons armed themselves and headed to Mountain Meadows, uh, where the immigrant group was camped, to await word from their prophet. Now, word came too late to change the events, and and Brigham Young, once uh, he received word of all this stuff, wrote a kind of a cryptic letter. Initially, he denied, you know, ever being able to find it, blah, blah, blah. But after he died, it was found amongst, uh, or a draft of it was found amongst his possessions. So here's what it says. In regard to the emigration trains passing through our settlements, we must not interfere with them until they are first notified to keep away. You must not meddle with them. The Indians, we expect, will do as they please, but you should try and preserve good feelings with them. There are no other trains going south that I know of, if those that are there will leave, let them go in peace. That's what Brigham Young said. Now, now the Mormons will say, see? He said, do not meddle with them, right? Yeah. Uh, let no let them go their way. But there's that real kind of cryptic part about the Indians we expect will do as they please. And at this time, the army had arrived, and it was camped outside uh, of Salt Lake. They'd sent the captain of the army in to talk it over with Brigham Young, Brigham Young threatened uh, their army, saying, you know, we will uh, raise up with everybody, and I won't restrain the Indians anymore, and we'll kill everyone there. And the captain reminded him that, you know, you might be able to uh, repulse our attack, but eventually uh, the government's going to send more and more people, and uh, eventually you won't be able to repel the entire United States. And so Brigham Young said, well, I'll burn everything to the ground before I give it up. And so the question is, was he sending them a message to allow the massacre to happen to kind of put a period on this point? Look, you know, I've tried to restrain these Indians with all my might, but sometimes they just you know, get out of hand. And look, now they've massacred uh, a group of immigrants. You know, this is what the future looks like if I'm not here. Yeah. Um, and that is, is that what he meant by the Indians we expect will do as they please? In any event... On the morning of September 6th, so this was before they got the message, John D. Lee saw that the uh, wagon train was really disorganized. And he thought, you know, this is a good time to strike. They had planned to hit them later, kind of in a narrow canyon way, where they'd be all in single file. They couldn't circle their uh, wagons. But uh, he thought, you know what, if we hit them now, we'll get this done with and over. So about a, a hundred Mormons disguised themselves in war paint. And on the morning of September 7th, rode into camp, fired, uh, killing or wounding about 15 people. Uh, 40 or 50 Paiutes rushed in and stampeded the cattle away. Uh, Unfortunately for the Mormons and the Paiutes, the emigrants were well-armed. They returned fire, repulsing the attack long enough to circle their wagons, and they began fortifying their position. They actually dug a trench uh, and a place for the kids, the women and children. So they dug a little pit for them to sit into. Unfortunately... Uh, they didn't have uh, a good enough position to circle their uh, wagons to enclose the main source of water, which is a nearby spring. It was about 50 yards outside their circle. Yeah. Now, when I first heard about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, it was presented to me that it was just a single attack that happened once and it was done. It That's turns what out I this, thought as well. This was a five-day siege. So they repulsed the initial attack. The Paiutes, um, a number of them were injured. Um, I think uh, some kneecaps were shot. Ow. And so they, they kind of lost their <laughs> will to battle. The Mormons had promised it would be very easy. You know, they have God on their side. They've got magic. And so apparently this convinced them that this really didn't work. And so a lot of the Paiutes left. Uh, and so... Well, kneecaps, Chuck. I mean, did yeah, those grow back? I'm not, I'm not sure I would have been too happy sticking around either if I got my kneecap shot off. No, you don't get those back, do you? They uh, they're not very good. Kneecaps aren't very good at growing back. No. You, you are correct. You get, do you really get, need them, though? You typically get two kneecaps, and then that's it. 
<laughs> no reserve. So uh, Lee led another attack the next day, but that was repulsed as well. So now we're on day two of the siege. They're they're kind of dug in, well fortified. He sends for aid to Cedar City because yeah. the Paiutes are leaving. He doesn't have a whole lot of people here. If he tries to rush it, he's going to take heavy casualties. He has fucked up. So Colonel Dame, head of the Navu Legion. Navu. Remember Navu? <laughs> I remember. Sent back orders that everyone in the party who could give an account of the ordeal must be done away with. They got to kill everybody. Oh, yeah. At this point, they've had several attacks. There's a high likelihood that even though the Mormons have painted themselves up as Native Americans, that the, the adults inside that camp know what's going on. They know the Mormons are with them. So they can't, they cannot yeah. let them go. Uh, reinforcements arrived from Cedar City and a plan was created. Get the immigrants to agree to surrender in exchange for protection and safe passage to Cedar City. So um, by the time reinforcements arrived, it was about the the fifth day of the siege. Now, these guys haven't had water for four or five days. I think maybe one guy had, had sneaked in and got a couple buckets on day three, but, th- but that's it um, for the entire camp. Remember, this is 140 people. About 15 yeah. of them are dead now, so you got 125 left inside this uh, fortifications. Um, their ammunition's running out, but the the Mormons aren't quite sure how much they have. Um, so, day five rolls around. Lee goes into the immigrant party under a white flag and starts negotiating with them. After a, a lot of discussion and some heated argument, including one of the leader of the camp uh, got shot and, and wounded, and uh, so he he spent five days in, in pain. Right, he's still alive. They they went and asked him. You know, they've offered us this. We're running out of ammunition. We have no water. We're running out of, of food. <clears throat> There's women and children here. They've offered us safe passage as long as we turn over our guns, and they'll protect us and they'll take us to Cedar City. And uh, his answer was, "Good God, no!" But they thought he was delirious, so they decided. No. All right, well, we'll go ahead and do this. Yeah. No, don't do so, it. So, you know, they're they're exhausted. They're suffering from thirst. They're, and they probably thought they had no other choice. It was either this or uh, get killed anyway. So you, you, you go for at least the hope that these people aren't total monsters and won't murder women and children. Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. You must be thinking of a different religion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Lee led the immigrants out in three parties. First, uh, he filled a wagon uh, full of uh, wounded and the youngest children. In the second, you have uh, women and older children. And uh, third, the men who are marched out in single file, each one flanked by a, uh, an armed escort. So they march for about a half an hour, kind of over a little bluff and around a turn. And uh, a guy named Higby fired a shot in the air, gave the order, Halt, do your duty, or do your duty to Israel. The armed guards turned and shot the unarmed men. And Nephi Johnson gave the order to kill the women and children who were in the second group, and uh, they turned and shot them as well. All right, so <clears throat> out of a party of roughly 140 people, only 17 survived, every one of them small children who the Mormons thought were too young to remember. Now, not surprisingly, some of them did remember. Now, these are all, I think, aged six and younger. Now, these sections... I'm going to be reading are, are straight out of Blood of the Prophets by uh, Bagley. So it's a very interesting read, very thorough, very well documented. And this is something I didn't do in the Church of Awesome uh, podcast episode. This is uh, in their own words of these kids who later wrote memoirs or reported to uh, journalists. Four-year-old Nancy Huff uh, discovered they were trapped. Then the men rushed from both sides, killing everybody they came to. She recalled uh, Captain Jack Baker, quote, had me in his arms when he was shot down and fell dead. I saw my mother shot in the forehead and fall dead. The women and children screamed and, cl- and clung together. Some of the young women begged the assassins after they had run out on us uh, not to kill them, but they had no mercy on them, clubbing their guns and beating out their brains. This is a common theme. They shot the men, often, you know, uh, in the head at close range, and... Uh, they used guns or clubs uh, to beat the women and children to death. This yeah. is from Na- Nancy Huff's memoir, so that's, that's from her own words. 
Uh, six-year-old John Calvin Miller was at his mother's side when she was killed and pulled arrows from her back until she died. He said he also lost two brothers and three sisters. Emerson Milam Tackett, uh, quote, thought he was to be killed and ran to a white man and begged for mercy. The terrified four-year-old offered to trade a new coat for his life. This is from Arkansas Sunday Post-Dispatch, September of 1895. This is from a special report of, I believe, one of the uh, Army captains who went down there a couple years after uh, Carleton. Uh, Although he painted the massacre as strictly an Indian affair, Albert Hamblin, so this is a Mormon, captured the horror of the scene. The immigrants made up a big crowd. When they reached the place where the Indians were hid in the bushes, the assailants pitched right out onto them and commenced shooting them with guns and bows and arrows and cut some of the men's throats with knives. The killers ran after them, yelling and whooping. As soon as the women and children saw the Indians spring out of the bushes, they all cried out. The women scattered and tried to hide in the bushes, but the Indians shot them down. Albert saw two girls run a quarter mile to the east and said he tried to save them when they hid in some bushes. A tribal shaman told the Indians not to kill them. The girls then came out and hung around him for protection. The shaman tried to save the girls, who were crying out loud. The Indians came up and seized the girls by their hands and their dresses and pulled and pushed them away from the doctor and then shot them. It was now growing dark. The two murdered girls may have been the uh, 12-year-old twins, Lucinda and Susanna Dunlap. Their surviving sisters, Rebecca and Louisa, recognized Albert as the man who killed them. So he's giving this story about uh, Native Americans pulling uh, these two girls off of a a Native American shaman and, and killing them, shooting them. But the sisters of those girls, who he thought were too young, pointed at him as the guy that killed those two young girls. Uh, Rebecca Dunlap, this is from her memoir, ran and hid behind a sage bush when the massacre began. Two of her older sisters were killed right near her and were lying dead by her side. The six-year-old girl heard her baby sister crying and ran to find her. She found her entwined in her mother's arms, but that mother was cold in death. Sarah Dunlap, uh, an infant, was shot through her right arm below the elbow by a large ball, breaking both bones and cutting her arm half off. Seizing her sister, Rebecca rushed back to the sagebush where she'd been hiding. She remained there until she saw a white man who she took for Jacob Hamblin, but it's probably one of his brothers. Jacob wasn't in the area at the time. She went up and begged him to save her life and her little sisters. She recalled... The Mormons and Indians shot down in cold blood the defenseless men, women, and children, then pierced them with bows and arrows, then cut their throats with knives. So this is what um, this, uh, I think she's four? She's four years old? Six. She's six years old. Uh, Sarah Baker recalled when the killing started, she had her arms around her father's neck while her sisters Betty and Mary Lavina were sitting in the back of the wagon. Her mother held her baby brother, Billy. Sarah screamed in terror as she watched her father gasp for breath and grow limp. Although she was only three years old at the time, Baker insisted, you don't forget the horror. You don't forget the blood-curdling war whoops and the banging of guns all around you. You don't forget the screaming of the other children, the agonized shrieks of women being hacked to death with tomahawks. And you wouldn't forget it either if you saw your own mother topple over in the wagon beside you with a big red splotch getting bigger and bigger on the front of her calico dress. That's from Sarah Baker's memoir. And, And finally, from Nancy Huff's memoir, at the close of the massacre, there was 18 children still alive. One girl, some 10 or 12 years old, they said was too big and could tell, so they killed her, leaving 17. So uh, there are other reports that they brought her out in front of the other children, shot her as uh, a message to the remaining children. You know, this is what's going to happen to you if you tell anyone what happened here. So so after the massacre, which from um, various accounts took between 5 minutes and 30 minutes to accomplish, uh, the bodies were stripped of their clothing, looted of their valuables, and given a quick shallow burial. Um... They dumped bodies in ditches, put a shallow layer of dirt over them. Again, the survivors, only survivors out of the 140 were 17 children, all age 6 or under. These children were taken to the homes of uh, local Mormons, later given to, to various people in the community to keep them separately so they couldn't talk to each other. On top of this, Colonel Dame of the Nauvoo Legion uh, submitted a voucher to the federal government for $2,200 for cattle and wagons given to the the uh, Native Americans in in payment for services or to keep them, you know, not going to war. 
uh, and this uh, suspiciously resembled the one stolen from the Fancher party. Uh, Levi Stewart submitted a bill for over $3,500 for various items, quote, furnished to the Indians, such as 171 pants, 135 shirts, gunpowder, lead, firing caps. And if you look at the manifest from the Fancher party, 171 pants, 135 shirts, gunpowder, lead. It's exactly from the uh, manifest. Uh, right. And that, that was signed by Brigham Young. In 1859... When the government sent troops to retrieve the surviving children to reunite them with their families in Arkansas, the Mormon families who took care of them submitted a bill for their care and upkeep for nearly $4,000, 2600 of which was paid by the federal government. Now, uh, when they arrived, when that army arrived, they found bones strewn all over Mountain Meadows. Bones were clawed, chewed by wolves, um, dug out. And the Mormons had not reburied them over two years. There was hair uh, still stuck in sagebrush. So the uh, army got his troops together, and they, they dug a, a grave for all the bones that they collected and uh, put underneath a, a monument. So, so again, uh, initially, in the initial investigation, all the Mormons closed rank. Uh, they had uh, sworn to each other never to say anything. Um, but some stuff still got out. And eventually, after multiple trials, uh, John D. Lee was executed in March of 1877. So this was 20 years after the incidents uh, occurred. He was uh, brought to, I believe, Mountain Meadows and uh, sat next to his coffin and, and executed by firing squad. So that, that intervening time, that intervening 20 years, is a whole story in and of itself. And But... Uh, only so out of all the involvement, only one person uh, was ever right. uh, tried, prosecuted, and convicted for the crimes. As a postscript to this, in 1999, the church, you know, they they put a I think a um, a hastily constructed monument um, after the first one was was taken down. I think in the 30s, maybe in 1999, the the church moved to restore the Mountain Meadows monument, and they were. Uh, clearing out the space with a, a huge backhoe, and they uh, found a lot of human bones. <laughs> yeah. Unsurprisingly, um, as always happens when they find human remains, work stopped. The remains were subject to uh, forensic analysis. And so the remains were uh, at least 28 men, women, and children. Those were buried by the U.S. Army in 1859. Uh, most adult male skulls had gunshot wounds to the to the head. Uh, most female and child skulls had primarily blunt force trauma, including children's aged four, seven, and nine years old. This corresponds with the, the reports that the investigations kind of brought up, that the men were mostly shot, the women and children were bludgeoned to death. Of the, the 11 gunshot wounds, uh, six were shot from the rear, five were shot face-to-face. -face. Blunt force trauma was directed mostly from above, as most of the victims were children. At least five of the victims were executed at close range with a gunshot to the back of the head. Uh, there was one gunshot wound to the top of the skull of a male child somewhere between 10 and 15 years old. Uh, one female victim was found to have broken teeth, suggesting that gunshots were used on women and children as well. Now, needless to say, when the initial results came out, the excavation was rapidly put to a halt by order of uh, Mormon Governor Mike Levitt. And the bones were reinterred, and the monument was quickly refurbished. So, big yeah. to do when this happened in, in 1999, but, you know, largely forgotten about now. Yeah. As is uh, the Mountain Meadows Massacre, um, outside of uh, Mormons, which, again, as, as it was presented to me, it was like a single attack. I had no idea before I started researching this that this was a five-day right. siege. And, and included the murder of over 120 people, again the vast majority of which were women and children. Yeah, no one remembers shit. You let time go by, these things slip away. The only thing people ever remember about the Mormons is polygamy. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, keep in mind that these were uh, regular people. They were God-fearing, good, obedient Mormons. Yeah, you'd have to be, I guess. And and that's the problem, isn't it? Unquestioning obedience. Yeah. A, a lack of skepticism. Aside from maybe one or two people who raised an objection, like, oh, man, maybe we shouldn't murder 140 people. Right. Perhaps we shouldn't sanction the killing of nearly 140 innocent people. 
Now, the, the, that's a problem, though, is they didn't believe they were innocent. They, there were all these rumors that they had murdered Joseph Smith, they'd murdered oh, yeah. Parley P. Pratt, blah, blah, blah. So that's probably the excuse that was used. But, again, the, the leaders thought that Brigham Young was hinting at this stuff, and certainly George Albert Smith was, was certainly hinting, hinting at this stuff. And, and perhaps Brigham Young initially wanted this to happen to send a message to the federal troops that were stationed at his doorstep you know, don't fuck with the Mormons, uh, or this is what's going to happen. We'll, we'll either close the overland routes, or these people won't be safe. You know, these people are kept safe at my say-so. So they'll fuck with us, and uh, your citizens are going to get murdered. And, of course, the Mormons had to carry it out. Now, uh, you know, I'd like someone to explain this to William Lane Craig, because in his debates in an article, he's defended the Israelites in the fictional story where they killed men, women, and children, right? Because they ordered to by God. He defended them and said, oh, how terrible. Can you imagine being an Israelite soldier and having to do this? How terrible for them. I wonder if he'd be as willing to stand up and defend these Mormons, who actually did, this is not a fictional story, actually did murder right. wholesale right. men, women, and children. Shot them, bludgeoned them to death, clubbed them to death, caved in their teeth with their guns. Men, women, and children. They really love them. So, <clears throat> when someone asks you, you know, what harm is it? Why do you atheists hate religion so much? Why, you know, what harm do these nice, God-fearing, wonderful people do? problem is the mindset that, uh, of, of slavish obedience, uh, unquestioning uh, obedience to your leaders in the hierarchy. You know, don't use your own brain. I've done the thinking for you. That's Obey. the problem with religion. God's perfect, right? He can't make a mistake. Right. Whatever orders he gives, through me, of course, you need to obey unquestioningly. And you can take normal, good people and convert them into monsters who are capable of the slaughter of 120 plus men, women, and children just by inserting religion into their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I you know, maybe I'm looking at this through my, uh, my lens of privilege here in the, you know, 21st century, but, you know, especially after you negotiate this fake surrender and you lead them away, how do you, how do you just wholesale murder people, women, and children? And every one of those people in the Nauvoo Legion, every one of those escorts did. Yeah. This isn't, oh, you know, God. one or two uh, mentally ill people. This is the entire group of people who, prior to this day, may not have harmed anyone in their entire lives. The, the vast majority of these people were young uh, recruits to the Nauvoo Legion. You know, there's some uh, clearly terrible people involved in this, and it's probably at the leadership who made these decisions, John D. Lee certainly among them, Isaac Height, Nephi Johnson. But uh, the vast majority of these were uh, soldiers carrying out their orders. And you can't do that uh, without that undercurrent of religious obedience. Take a moment and think a second about what it would take for you to murder a small child. I can't think of a single reason. I, I would ever do it. It's like uh, the Steven Weinberg quote, right? With a rat, religion, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. Right. Absolutely. And it's easy to see how, why our armed services and religion cozy up so well together. Unquestioning obedience to authority. Oh, yeah. And... Oh, then that's the can of worms I don't want to open. <laughs> just, there's a whole parallel between the Iraq War, Crusades... Quit opening that can of worms, man. I will close that can of worms. It is time to end this terribly depressing podcast. End this, Chuck. End it now. On a lighter note, perhaps we'll come back with, uh, I don't know, Founding Fathers, maybe, since it was mentioned and will be mentioned over and over <laughs> yes. again in the fucking Republic, uh, Republican primary uh, remember the, the founding, founding fathers? fathers were all fucking evangelical christians they're all up there like singing hallelujah in the uh whatever that place was they wrote the constitution some yes. room some yes. building <laughs> bible thumping fucking evangelical oh, yeah. christians singing gospels and and ben franklin uh some of the most uh one of the most evangelical christians oh, of, of all totally Totally. He, he's like a modern Mike Huckabee. Or, <laughs> <laughs> or, or is it the uh, other way around? 
<laughs> on the historicity of Jesus, I've been listening to that audiobook, Matt. Um, so I might do a podcast on that. Well. So, if you made it uh, all the way through this podcast without turning it off in, in sheer disgust, uh, and I, I don't blame you. For anyone who's still around, I'm amazed. <laughs> Hello! Hello! <laughs> Chip in! Do you want the next podcast to be on the Founding Fathers' religion? What do you want to be on the historicity of Jesus? We will take every vote uh, into careful consideration. Yes. But don't go to the website, because I just, I never check that. So. <laughs> Chuck does, though. Okay, go to the website. That is impressive. Not a single plane was crashed during hey, the absence. I don't know what everybody does for a job out there, but you know that's the realities of my job. You're batting a thousand. <laughs> it's like it's either that or nothing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you don't get in the Hall of Fame for batting like three thirty three. <laughs> I've only crashed twenty five percent of the flights. <laughs> That's like a C, almost a C plus. Yeah. <laughs>